Ephesians chapter 3. Have you ever been praying and something distracted you or interrupted you? Or do you struggle sometimes just praying and your mind wanders? You can raise your hand. It's okay. It happens to me. I had ADD back before they knew it was ADD. Teachers just thought it was L-A-Z-Y. But one of the things I've learned when I'm praying and something crosses my mind, I thought, you know, it could be God trying to speak. And so that's why I keep a journal. When I pray in the morning, I just write some thoughts down. And it may be that what God is trying to tell me is something he's trying to communicate. Prayer is not just a one-way communication, right? God can speak to you as well. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins a prayer. His intention was to pray. And yet I think God impresses on his mind how important it is before he gets into the prayer that he completes the thought from chapter 2. And so the prayer really picks back up in chapter in verse 14. We're not going to get to that this morning. So when Paul says, for this reason, in verse 1, he's referring to what he's just talked about. What has he just talked about? He's talked about the fact that Jews and Gentiles are now level, equal. There's not first-class citizens in heaven. There's not second-class Christians and citizens that are going to end up in heaven. And that's good news. That's good news for us because most of you in here are not Jewish. Most of you in here are Gentiles. You probably never thought about that. Another word for that is pagan or heathen. We weren't, we weren't born into what was considered the family of God. We have been adopted if you are a child of God. And so this morning is really good news for us because it focuses on the fact that we can now come boldly in a manner that would have been inconceivable to a Jew to walk into the presence of God. So look at what Paul says in the first five verses, and then we'll move on. But for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in my Bible, there's a line. I don't know what your translation has there, but there's kind of a parenthesis that takes place for the next few verses. If indeed you have heard the steward of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So Paul starts out just explaining who he was. Most letters of Paul, he, he identified himself right in the first verse, Paul and what does he usually refer to himself as? A slave of Jesus Christ. Here he described himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, which was exactly true. Literally, Paul was in a prison, or perhaps under house arrest. In any case, he was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard, and he was in that condition about three years. Paul spent about five years of his life in prison in different places. For Jesus Christ. And so he says, first of all, Paul, a prisoner. Now, I've said this before, but if you ever get a letter from me and I'm, from, I'm in prison, it's not going to be about ministry probably. It's going to be, bake me a cake with a file in it. Or how about coughing up some money to bail me out of jail? In fact, for most, getting thrown in prison would probably end your ministry. You would think, oops, this is an accident. God must have fallen asleep. He blinked. I ended up in prison. When he gets me out of prison, I'm really going to serve him. Paul didn't look at it that way. Paul saw his imprisonment 
as no impediment, no thwarting of his ministry, he continued his ministry. I've always wondered about that Roman guard that's chained to Paul as he's dictating these letters. What's he hearing 24 hours a day? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many Roman guards, because we know of some of his jailers who come to faith in Christ. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner. And he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar, which from human eyes, that's why he was there. The emperor of Rome. He was his prisoner, and yet he said, no, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's because of the calling that God has placed on my life that I find myself in prison, and it's more than that, it's for your sake. Paul writes to the Gentile believers in the church at Ephesus, and this letter is going to be read all over that region. And he says, I'm a prisoner for your sake. And then he takes a parenthesis. And you think, well, was this an accident it got written this way? No, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. So it's no accident that verses 2 through 13 are inserted into this passage, into this paragraph, because it's a continuation of what Paul's already been teaching in the latter half of chapter 2. In fact, there's no chapters. When Paul wrote this, he didn't say, okay, now chapter 3, verse 1. He wrote a letter, and sometimes the sentences are several verses long. So he gets to explaining and thought, no, this is too important for them to understand. If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me for you. The stewardship of God's grace. Well, what is God's grace? I learned in Sunday school growing up, grace meant God's unmerited favor. Well, that's true. I like a better definition for me is it's, it's receiving something from God that I didn't deserve. What has Paul received? Paul has received forgiveness. He's received eternal life. He's received relationship with Jesus Christ, whom, by the way, he had been a persecutor of. He was the ISIS of the first century. Killing Christians. Persecuting, hounding, chasing believers, even out of Jerusalem. He would hound them. So Paul says, I've become a steward, literally an administrator or a head of a household. Grace is not given only for your luxury and benefit. Grace that is given to you benefits others as you tell the story of Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. So I'm a steward of this grace given to me for you on your behalf. Paul, who grew up a Jew, was a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, proud of that heritage until he comes face to face with the living God that he had been persecuting. And now he's called to reach the very people that he despised growing up, the Gentiles. By revelation made known to me the mystery. The word here literally means to shut the mouth. <laughs> this is something that has been a secret, that's been concealed, and he's already revealing it. He's taken the lid off. That's what revelation means. It means something's been kept undercover. He's taken the lid off. And what is that? Christ has died for both the Jew and the Gentile. So he's made known the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, where he just wrote it. Paul's saying, as you read this letter, you're going to uncover the mystery. You're going to get it revealed. The blinders are going to come off. The cover's going to come off. Revelation takes place. When you read, you will understand. And Paul was praying that on their behalf that they would understand his insight into the mystery of Christ. Before, had it had not been made known just to the average everyday citizen. In fact, in the Old Testament, they didn't have enough information to put all the pieces together, and yet this very truth is prophesied 
throughout the Old Testament. This wasn't some new thought that God had. This had been an eternal purpose and plan of God. This mystery that's now been revealed through the New Testament writers, the holy apostles and prophets. Christ has appeared and the light bulb come on. The light has entered the world. And Paul was the, myth, the messenger of this revelation. Let's look at the expansion of the revelation. This mystery that Paul's described now gets expanded. Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Paul says to be specific. Three things really important that you get. To be specific. Paul had been a proud Pharisee. He grew up in a culture, a religion, a tradition, a family that would have disparaged the Gentiles. They would have gone out of their way to avoid even talking to a Gentile. They would never enter the home of a Gentile, much less allow a Gentile to enter their home. They would never eat with one another. They had absolutely no use for Gentiles, and yet that's who Paul has been called to reach. And he says three startling things that shows the transformation that's taking place, not only in Paul's mind, but in Paul's heart. First, their fellow heirs, literally a participant in common. I want you to understand something. To say that you are heir means you're now part of the family. And so when Paul says the Gentiles are now fellow heirs with us, he's saying something that went totally against his upbringing, went totally against what he had thought for all of his life up until this point. For a Jew... To say that the Gentiles were now part of the family of God, joint heirs with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, as Paul's already taught, would have been the same as looking at a leper who was contagious and say, go give him a hug. That's what Paul's saying to the Gentile mind. And why is he saying it? Because the church in Ephesus and other places, Galatia and other places that Paul wrote, there were believers there, there were also Jewish converts who were coming in and saying, okay, it's, it's fine that you've come to faith in Christ, but you're a second-class Christian. I'm of the family of God. And really, if you want to be right with God, you need to become a Jew first. Paul's breaking all that down. So first he says Gentiles are fellow heirs. Then he says they're fellow members of the body, literally the church, the called-out ones, the body of Christ. They're fellow members. You're no better than them, and they're no worse than you. You're equal at the foot of the cross. In fact, he's saying Jew and Gentile now are indistinguishable in God's eyes. He's looking at you the same. The lid's been taken off. And Paul's sharing a new truth with Gentile believers and Jewish believers. For the Jewish believers, it was to correct their mistaking identity, mistaken identity. For the Gentiles, it was to say to them, you're the same in God's eyes as his chosen people. Not only fellow members, but last, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. You're fellow 
partakers. You're a co-participant. Jews would have considered this inconceivable. In fact, they would have considered it close to blasphemy. And yet that's what Paul's teaching. You don't have to convert to Judaism. So what does that mean for me and you? It means we come to Christ as we are. We don't have to become something else first. And once we come to Christ, we add nothing to the cross. We're right with God. Paul said it's those promises, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, through the gospel, through this good news of Jesus Christ, that I was made a minister. I want to stop there for a minute. Paul didn't seek out the ministry. Paul was made a ministry. What happened to him on the road to Damascus was not exactly his call to ministry. It was a conversion experience. It's where he came to faith in Christ. And yet God told him, get up. i got something for you to do. And he literally was blind for three days. And Paul calls him into ministry. And Paul saw the... Paul saw this as it's a calling from God. I don't get flippant when people come to me and say they feel like God may be calling them into ministry, but my answer typically is if you can do anything else, do it. And they kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? You're a minister and you're telling me if I can do anything else? It's because it's got to be a calling of God. It's not something you choose, it's something He chooses and He calls you into ministry. If He calls you into ministry, there's no greater thing that you can do. But if you're not called of God, you probably won't last and you won't be happy. Because difficult times will come. Maybe not as difficult as what Paul experienced. But Paul considered it a gift of God that he was called into ministry. And I think, you know, for Paul to say, this is a gift as he's chained to a Roman guard. And to know that there were times he was beaten. There were times he was shipwrecked. He ultimately would be put to death because of his faith in Jesus Christ. So there's some of you in this room that are called to ministry. Embrace that, but make sure it's from God, not your parents, not another minister, but it's what God has called you to. He's made you a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given him. And Paul knew where the power was, the working of his power. And in verse 8, he says to me, the very least of all the saints. In fact, Paul kind of coined the phrase, the leaster. And that wasn't a false humility on Paul's part. Paul's looking at the gospel of Christ and realizing, I'm the last. I'm last in line. I am the least of all the followers of Christ, of all the apostles. I'm the least. I think part of it is Paul understood where he came from and recognized that I'm not worthy to, to do the ministry that God's called me to. Well, bingo, none of us are. We're made worthy because of the blood of Jesus Christ, but it's never about us. It's about Him. I'm the very least, but here's my message. And this is where I, I don't know that we can grasp totally what Paul's trying to say, but from a Roman imprisonment, Paul says, here's my message, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. In prison, Paul looked at Jesus and recognized it is unfathomable. The word fathom meant to track out. It meant to follow footprints to know where somebody was going. So to say it's unfathomable, it means this can't be tracked out. This is beyond putting together with my own mind. This is untrackable. This is 
unsearchable, the riches of Christ. And in our Western mindset, we, we've seen riches. And we're overwhelmed by them. We know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And what Paul's saying is, in light of anything I could receive on earth, the riches of Christ are beyond me. It's unfathomable. To bring to light the administration of the mystery for the ages hidden who created all, all things. And then last, the purpose of this revelation. I love Paul gets to verse 10 and he says, so that. When you see that word in Scripture, you need to just kind of stop for a minute and realize because of what he said, here's, here's a truth. So that. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So that. Just talked about the manifold or the unfathomable riches. Now he's talking about the manifold wisdom. Literally means multicolored, intricate, the intricate beauty of an embroidered pattern. Paul's using that to describe the wisdom of God that it might be made known. It's been concealed. It's now come to light, and he's calling you the church. He's calling the church in Ephesus, and we're included in the body of Christ. He's calling us to be ministers to make that known. Not just full-time people to get paid for ministry, but everybody who's a Christian. Regardless of age, you've come to faith in Christ. You've now been given a mission, and that is to dis display the manifold wisdom of God. And here's how you display it to us. Through the church is to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Scholars debate who in the world is he talking to here. Who's he talking about? Most scholars will say he's talking about the angels. But they debate whether he's talking about demons or angels. It could be both. <laughs> Rulers and principalities, authorities in the heavenly places. We know this much, that the angels long to look into the truth of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Paul is saying you as the church are a, a living testimony to the angels who are forever in the presence of God, worshiping him. Read Revelation and see that even right now, those angels that are in the face of God are constantly never ceasing to worship him. One day we will join them. We won't become angels, we're saints but we're going to join them in their worship in accordance with the eternal purpose. In other words, this purpose of God isn't something he just made up in the New Testament. This has been his eternal purpose from the creation. And it's been carried out through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then catch this. In whom we have boldness and confident access through him in faith. I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul is saying... We have boldness, all outspokenness, frankness. We have the opportunity to come into the presence of God boldly with an absence of fear and confident access, a reliance or a trust that you're going to be admitted into his presence. Here's what God's saying. Come to me. And I thought about that this week as I preached. What is it that keeps us from coming to God? 
I came up with four things if you're taking notes. These aren't going to be on the screen, just four thoughts. One of the things that would keep people from coming to God, into the presence of God, would be fear. In the Old Testament, it was justified fear. To come into the presence of God was an awesome, audacious thing. The high priest could do it once a year into the Holy of Holies. You believe you're in the presence of God. This is where the glory of God dwells. And yet there were people that did it without being invited into the presence, and they died. Literally, it says flames came out from the altar and consumed them. Two little piles of dust. And so if you're now told you can come into the presence of God, you're kind of like, well, I think I'll take a pass on that. Because I don't know if I'm worthy. Well, here's the truth. You're not worthy. You're not invited into God's presence because you're worthy. But you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because he's now granted us access into his presence. Second thought is shame. You may think, I'm just ashamed to come into the presence of God. I know what I've done. Well, guess what? He knows what you've done too. And he's inviting you into his presence. No, you're not worthy. But don't have the thought, who do I think I am? Here's who you think you are. You're a child of God if you come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And he has now given us access to his very presence. Or maybe it's just sin. Thinking, I can't approach God right now. There's sin in my life. Do you know where that comes from? That's the devil. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you what the devil does. The devil convinces you to do something to disobey God, and he he did it with Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. You'll be happier. You'll be more fulfilled. You'll be like God if you'll do this. And he does the same thing today. You'll be happier. You'll feel like more of a man, more of a woman. Just do this. As soon as you do it, he turns on you. Whoop! You're in trouble now. God's got a big stick. He's coming after you. And so rather than running to God for forgiveness, what do we do? We run from God. And yet God all the while is saying, why don't you come into my presence and receive mercy and grace? In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So it could be fear, it could be shame, it could be sin, it could just be ignorance. It could be that nobody's ever told you you can approach God. And he's invited you to do that. In fact, you've approached God today. If you have sung, you've come to approach God. You've been a part of worship in this place this morning. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Psalms 22, 3 says, you're enthroned upon the praises of your people. Literally, you inhabit it. Literally means, God, you come and sit down when your name is worshipped. So this morning, you have entered into the presence of God. And he's invited you to do that. And that's good news. So we have confident boldness and confident access through what? Through faith in him. It's never about us. So don't play spiritual comparisons with a person down the road thinking they're worthy to enter the presence of God. If I could just be more like them. No, you be who you are. And if you've come to Jesus Christ in faith for forgiveness of your sins, you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior, you have the same access that anybody in this room has. And you come boldly. 
not because of something I've done where I can poke my chest out and say, well, I kind of earned this invitation. <laughs> None of us did. Therefore, Paul says, don't lose heart. Paul's writing to people from prison to say, hey, don't lose heart that I'm suffering because my tribulations are on your behalf. Paul's literally saying, I've been beat, I've been shipwrecked, I've been in prison numerous times. And for three years, I've been under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard in Rome. And Paul knew, he told Timothy, they're going to kill me. And they ultimately do. He loses his life for the cause of Christ. But Paul says, don't lose heart in that. Because it's all for your glory. Romans 8, 16 and 17, I'll close with this. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, catch this, if you're a child of God, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There's coming a day when we're raised up together with Christ. He's ultimately going to receive ultimate glory, but it says we're going to be glorified with him. Let's pray together about that. Father, thank you for the truth. God, thank you that it's not about me, it's not about my actions or behavior. But God, it's because of the grace of Jesus Christ and because of his shed blood that I can know you as my Lord and Savior and have bold, confident access into your presence. And God, you're here now. Would you touch hearts? Would you say in Romans that your spirit bears witness with our spirit? God, if there's someone here this morning that's not experiencing that, that doubts, questions, wonders, do I really know God? God, would today be the day of their salvation. Lord, help them find somebody with their group, somebody who has a relationship with you they trust, and find one of us to talk to at the back. Just to settle it, to nail it down today, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you welcome us all in this hour because of Jesus. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all stand up.